Uh, Our New Testament reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. It's the night before Jesus will be crucified, and he prays for his disciples uh, and for us who will follow. Beginning with verse 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one, as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you join me in a prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that in the next few moments, you will open our ears so that we can hear the truth. You will open our eyes so that we can see you. And you will change our hearts so that our will will be conformed to your will. These things we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. 
As a uh, young boy, and until I was 20 years old or so, I lived in a very small town. As a very young boy, I don't believe my town had more than 2,000 people in it, and it had not one single stoplight, not one. We had a few stop signs, not too many of those, no stoplights. We took an annual pilgrimage, sometimes twice a year. We would go to Louisville, Kentucky, which is where my grandparents were at Christmas time. It was a long journey. We never stayed overnight anywhere because my dad just would plow through the night. Back when it was 55 miles an hour only, it would take 24 hours. Took a long time. Three boys in the back seat, no van. We had fun sometimes and fought the rest of the time. It's some fond memories. I remember one thing in particular, probably more than anything else, is that when we got near the, the end of our journey, coming back home, we had this little game we would play. Dad would say, okay, boys, it's time to see who can spot the blinking light. It was on US-1. Like I said, no stop lights in our town. But there were two blinking lights. One in the town to the north of us called Port Salerno. The next blinking light was the place where you entered our town. So we would get up on the back of the seat and start watching. It was a big contest to see who would spot the first blinking light first, then the second blinking light. Because you know what we realized is as soon as you saw the first blinking light, it was just about over. The journey was coming to an end. By the time you saw the second blinking light, you were only maybe a half mile away from home. It was kind of exciting. So this morning, the passage we read in John chapter 17, there's sort of a striking parallel. Maybe not to traffic lights, but it's near the end of Jesus' earthly life, and he is seeing the end of the journey. He's predicting the end of the journey, and he's preparing the disciples for the journey that will follow. So back to being a kid. I sometimes wonder what it would have been like if we had gotten close to the last blinking light, and my dad would have turned to me after I was 16 and said, well, Bobby, we're going to drive home. And then I want to have you take the rest of the stuff that's in the car down to Miami, 90 miles away, handing the keys over to you. I probably would have been excited in spite of the fact I was tired, driving alone, cool, a journey. Jesus is saying, I've been with you to the disciples for three years, and now Here are the keys to the car. The next part of the journey, you're on your own because I'm leaving this world. So how does he develop that end of the journey theme in this prayer? Well, the first thing is to say what the journey has been all about. The journey has been about the kingdom of God. 
And the rest of the journey will be an extended kingdom of God. But to begin with at the outset, what is clear about Jesus' journey on this earth is that the mission of the kingdom was always redemption. That's why he came. He came to die on a cross so that he could redeem the sins of the world. You see, the cross is more than a sacrificial death on behalf of people he really liked. It's more than a martyr's death about an innocent victim. It is, to an extent, both of those. But the real purpose of the death wasn't an accident of history. The real purpose of the death was planned by the Godhead long before the historical event took place. At the very beginning of our Bible, in the book of Genesis, we see it just in a glimmer. After the fall, God says, someday the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Someday, sin is going to be destroyed. And the one who destroys it will have a bruised heel. And then Jesus rolls out the mission. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, not reluctantly, but willingly submits to the plan of the Godhead to die for the sins of the world. To put it in the words of Paul, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why confession is so important. It's so essential to the Christian faith. One of the most famous prayers of confession comes in the book of Common Prayer, the Episcopal Prayer Book. The 1662 version, I say that for a reason, includes these words when confessing. There is no health in us. That's dramatic. As a matter of fact, we've used that confession on occasion here at church. You know the modern version? For the Book of Common Prayer, in that confession, that phrase is removed. Why? Because of what the phrase means. What the phrase means is not acceptable to our contemporary way of thinking. The phrase means we can't heal ourselves. The phrase means we can't fix ourselves. The phrase means we cannot atone for ourselves. We cannot do enough good to overcome the deep sinfulness of our human condition. There is no health in us. And health only comes from the outside. Namely, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And that health not only heals, but it destroys. It destroys sin and death so that healing can take place. 
We must always remember that confession is critical to our self-understanding as Christ followers. As one theologian put it in a quip, one confession is not enough. He said, confessing your sins is kind of like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. That's why if a Christian is ever asked whether or not he's ever confessed his sins to God, the answer shouldn't be, oh, well, that's a difficult question. I make mistakes and I just try to fix them. I don't bring God into the equation. A person who responds that way has no clue who Jesus is. All they know is Jesus, the historical figure. If that's our attitude, even for a moment, we've forgotten who Jesus is. Jesus is the Redeemer because we are hopeless in our sins. Second part of the message at the end of the journey is that the result of this kingdom mission, the result is eternal life. In the words of Jesus in this prayer, to know the one true God and the one who he has sent, this is life. To know God is life. And the pathway to the full knowledge of God is through Jesus Christ, his son. Not only is life essential when you link it to God, or should I say, God is essential to understanding life. When you enter into relationship with God, when you know God, when you acknowledge God, you enter into a new kind of life. Everything changes. The old is made new. Things are turned upside down. Reality is entirely different. You affirm things you never affirmed before. You believe things you never believed before. Your life is rocked to its core when you know God. You not only experience a different kind of life here, you experience the hope and the wonder of life to come. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to keep ourselves free from diseases. Isn't that true, especially right now? I'm about ready to get my first vaccine on Tuesday. Yay. But no matter, yeah. (laughs) No matter how many vaccines we come out with. No matter how many years in a row I take the flu shot. No matter how good chemo might be if I have cancer. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. There's no avoiding it. But the result of the kingdom mission of Jesus Christ, again in the words of John, is even those who die will live, even though they die. And they will never die again. So the kingdom, its mission is redemption. The result of the mission is eternal life. And third, here's something really important for us. The kingdom mission 
is extended, continued, beyond the blinking light, the rest of the journey. It is extended to us. And how does it happen? It happens when we are sanctified by the truth. Sanctify them, Jesus says. The ones I'm about ready to leave in the world, don't take them out of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. How many things could we say about the word of truth? So many. It could turn into a year-long series. But what are a few things that relate to the word of truth that is going to sanctify us if we submit to that word of truth? The first I want to mention is this. It comes at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. This, of course, is not the only prayer recorded by Jesus. It becomes the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. It becomes the, 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 the center of all reality for Christians. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your, your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. God is the king of the universe. That's the one absolutely, unequivocally, absolutely foreign truth to the world. God is the king of the universe. God is not someone like a politician who is elected and then thrown out of office. God is not a leader who worries about whether or not he can stay in office. God is not a leader who is fickle. God is the king of the universe. He made it, he created it, and he will restore it. That reality is so hard to put inside our mind. You know why? You know why? Because our history with kings is not a good one. Because we look around at kings and dictators and people of power and we don't think of someone who is the sacrificial leader. We don't think of someone whose mission it is to die for his or her people. We think of people who are self-saturated and power hungry. This kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. This kingdom and the essence of it are illustrated in a person who doesn't know selfishness at all, doesn't grasp for power at all. It's a king who puts others first. That's the second truth. First truth, I'm sorry. The king is the sovereign of the universe. The second truth, this is probably the hardest one. I can accept the first, but the second one, man, it just constantly bites. Second one is this. The truth is that I'm not naturally inclined towards God. Ouch. I don't want to believe it. I want to believe somehow that my heart is inclined towards God. And all I have to do is get on the bandwagon of my best side and pursue God. That's not true according to the Scripture. What is true according to the Scripture is that I am turned inward. 
that I am a person, even though I might acknowledge God, and even though I might have a deep longing for God, which I do, I continually turn inward towards myself. I constantly live under the illusion that somehow I know what's best for me. I constantly live under the illusion that if I pursue this, that, or the other, my satisfaction will be real. All of that is an illusion. And the reason it's an illusion is because I'm a self-centered individual. And God says through Jesus Christ, your heart is not necessarily inclined to me. Your heart is inclined towards sin. And that's why I had to come and reset the table. That's why you must submit to me through confession so that I can take your heart, which is constantly turned inward, and turn it towards me. That's a truth that's hard to accept. Because all of us want to believe in ourselves. We want to believe that we're better than we are. Here's the third truth that is clear in chapter 17 and in other places. The truth that the world hates the king. It's just true. I don't mean the green grass and the trees and the bugs and the birds and all that kind of... I mean the ethos of this world. The world that is controlled and under somehow the secondary authority of the prince of the power of the air. That world hates the king. Sometimes it might seem like they like the king. But the reality is... They hate the king. And that means, says Jesus, what you're about to walk into is a world that hates the king and thus is going to hate the kingdom subjects. And that's you. So put on your armor. Walk into the world and don't live under the delusion that it's all going to be okay. It's not all going to be okay. You're going to have persecution. You're going to be hit broadside. There's going to be people who want to destroy you just because you follow another king. Think about the rest of the New Testament. Think about the disciples, all but John himself, who die a martyr's death. Why? Because the people who killed them hated the king. The parable that Jesus tells was a parable about the future. When the son came to fix the vineyard that was just overrun by thugs, he'd sent other servants. But then he finally sent his son. And what did they do with the son? They killed the son. That's Jesus. And what are they going to do to the followers, Jesus is saying to him? They're going to kill you too. In this world, there's going to be persecution. But, But dear Father, dear Father, don't take them out of the world. Just protect them from the evil one. Protect them by your truth. Your word is truth. That's the fourth part of sanctification. 
It's the struggle. Don't take them out of the world. Don't let them be twisted by false teaching. Help them to unite around the truth. Don't let them give up in the middle of persecution. Walk with them in the fire. The sanctification is in the struggle. They are inseparable. You cannot experience sanctification without trouble. And Jesus knew it. That's why he prayed for us. How are we sanctified? By the truth? Or put it another way, how do we stay on track? How do we finish the journey? We reunite around the truth, always returning to the North Star, which is Jesus. Remember years ago, there was this um, cute little bracement that said WWJD. What would Jesus do? It got kind of trite. People made fun of it. It went away. It's kind of a one-time wonder. Every once in a while, you see it around now. For all the things that people belittled it over, it was good. But let's extend it beyond just a little bracelet. And let's say to us who are Christ followers, what would Jesus think? What would Jesus' attitude of his heart be? What would Jesus weep over? What would be Jesus' response in this situation? Another way to put it is, does it, they, does it seem like Jesus? Does this teaching, does this person who might seem really persuasive, does it sound like Jesus? Does this action, this idea, does it look like Jesus? I'm told that bankers can feel a counterfeit bill in their fingers almost immediately. Why? Because they've touched it so often? No, because they never touch it. Because their fingers are so used to the real thing that when the counterfeit slides through their hands, boom, they know it. So as Christ followers on this extended journey, that ought to be our life. When it comes through our purview, when it comes through our mind, we ought to be able to recognize it. And the only way to recognize it is to know Jesus more and more and more. How are we sanctified by it? By keeping Jesus as our North Star. How are we sanctified in the truth? We're sanctified in the truth by believing it against all odds.
against much evidence to the contrary. We continue to believe it. We continue to have faith. You know, think with me for a moment. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there was no indication that the kingdom of God was coming. At the cross, there was no aha moment for the disciples. This is the kingdom of God. And even, my friends, at the empty tomb, there was not an aha moment. Oh, I see it now, the kingdom of God. What was there? There was bewildered faith. There was people who couldn't figure it out because all the evidence was to the contrary. And then Jesus showed up again and said, I want you to go to this place in Jerusalem and wait. And I promise you, the Spirit is going to come. How counterintuitive is that? Jesus is gone. But hang on, have faith, the Spirit is coming. See, isn't that our life day after day? The invisible reality, the presence of God, we have to hang on to against all odds, against all the evidence that's in front of us. How are we sanctified through the truth? We're sanctified when we believe it even though we don't feel it. And when we believe it even though we don't see it. You know, maybe you're here this, maybe this morning. Maybe you're watching online this morning. And you're saying, I don't feel it. I don't see it. I'm having a hard time believing it. Maybe the only reason you're listening is because you've trained your feet to come or trained your ear to listen. But it seems about as empty as the tomb itself. Hang on, my friends. Walk through it. Don't lose your faith. Maybe every day seems like Monday, which seems like a week away from Sunday. Don't give up. I want to I say two thank yous to you. To you who are struggling with your faith. I got two thank yous for you. The first thank you is this. Thank you for not giving up. Thank you for not giving up. And hang on, the light's coming. That's an encouragement to me. When you don't give up. The second thank you I have is kind of a thank you and an admonition all in the same. Thank you for once believing. And in the darkness, 
remember. Remember. What you once knew was true. And latch onto it like an anchor for your soul. You know, when we are sanctified by the truth, it's more than being sanctified by an idea. Because following the truth is not just following an idea. It's a commitment to a person. It's a commitment to our risen Lord. Again, I know some of you are struggling with your faith. Don't give up. Join others. Be in this thing together. Right now, as a pastor, I have to tell you, it's my chief concern. Because of what we've been through, we're just going to give up on being together. We're going to say to ourselves, well, I've been okay. I I can get them by on my own. No. You can't do it alone. Jesus told us that over and over again. You can't do it alone. You've got to have the other. I've read this short passage from Dietrich Bonhoeffer many times over the years, but I want to read it again. It's about community and how we need one another. It says, God has put this word, the word of truth, into the mouth of men in order that they may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks the word to another. He speaks the word of God. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother in the mouth of another man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again. When he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth, he needs his brother or sister, the man or a woman who is a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart. The Christ in your heart. That Christ is weaker than in the heart of your brother. Your heart is uncertain. But you have a brother or a sister whose heart right now is not uncertain. That's why you need to be with us. So let me say one more thank you. Thank you for being here. 
because I need you. Not just so I can get paid. (laughs) That's good too. I need you because I need you for my faith. I need you because I need you to believe when I'm just kind of wallering in doubt. I need you because I need your strength when I'm weak. I need you. Thank you. So as you leave today, ask yourself this question. Do I know someone who is struggling with their faith? If it's not you, maybe it's somebody you know and love. Reach out to them and let them borrow your faith. They need it. Pray for them that their faith will be restored. For those of you who are not here, for whatever reason, if your faith is weak, meet with your brothers and sisters in Christ to renew it. Because that's what the body of Christ is for. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, thank you that it's not easy. Because if it was easy, we'd get lazy. And if we were successful, we'd get arrogant. And then before long, we'd turn inward just like we were before. But because you allow us to go through the struggle, you refine us like gold in the fire. And you help the truth to be deeply lodged within our being. So thank you. May those of us who have experienced that distance return to the faith of the other and be restored. For those of us in any given week who are just befuddled like the disciples at the tomb. Lord, allow another to speak into our hearts. And for those of us who right now are confident, let us not rest in our own confidence, but let us share it with another to encourage them in a time of weak faith. And we'll thank you for helping us to be the body of Christ that you called. In your name we pray. Amen.